Blog Talk Radio. The information discussed during this show is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any condition. If your pet is currently experiencing any medical issues, please seek immediate assistance from a licensed veterinarian. Hello, this is Dr. O'Sullivan with Holistic Pet Care with Dr. O. Thanks very much for listening this morning. We have a very uh, interesting and serious topic to talk about today. And I'm lucky enough to have one of my dear friends and um, clients and an experienced professional in what we're about to talk about today. Um, Thank you very much, Becky, for joining us. I really appreciate it. No problem. Happy to be on. (laughs) So today's topic is bloat. Uh, Some of us might know bloat as GDV, which is gastric dilation and volvulus. It's when the stomach of our dogs actually bloat up, get very, very big, very, very distended, and twist. Now, um, those are very easy, quick terms to talk about a very, probably the most serious, quick-moving, life-threatening condition that our dogs face other than, you know, trauma, such as being hit by a car, those types of things. But with regard to things that happen inside of them, happen naturally, happen in a way that, unfortunately, veterinary medicine still finds quite a mystery. And we're going to go over that in detail because I think that it's extremely important that people know that this happens, people know what to look for, as a warning sign and what the biggest clues are that my dog, your dog, might be on the road to a blow. So that being said, I'd like to invite everyone who's listening, uh, first of all, to call in with any contributions, any questions, any top, um, uh, let's see here, any, any information, maybe any history, any stories that you'd like to contribute to the show would be greatly appreciated. You can get to us by dialing Three four seven two one five six one three eight, and you'll get cashed right in, and you can ask myself or Becky any questions at all about the topic today. That being said, let's get started. The bloat uh, is considered to be the mother of all emergencies, meaning that if you think for a moment that your dog might be bloating you need to drop everything and get them to a veterinary hospital, an emergency veterinary hospital that would have the facilities to deal with such an emergency that we'll be going over here. Bloat uh, is a condition that overshadows all other veterinary emergency conditions because of the rapidity of how fast the condition comes on and how serious the consequences are and of the um, amazing efforts in emergency treatment that must take place. So normally when our friends eat food, they ingest them, mucus, those types of things, go into the stomach, the muscles move and grind and dispense the food into the small intestine. And then sometimes you get something like an occasional burp, and that's about it. For some reason, in bloat cases, the gas in the food stretches the stomach to many, many, many times the normal size, uh, causing extreme amounts of pain, and the stomach will actually rotate upon itself, twisting off not only the escape route for all of the food and gas and liquids that are in the stomach, but also cutting off the blood supply to the stomach and many of the other organs that are around it, including the spleen. When the condition continues and the stomach gets larger and larger and larger, it also cuts off the blood supply from the back of the body to the heart and from the heart to the rest of the body. So you can imagine that this condition would wreak all types of havoc. And the havoc that it wreaks is important, but in my opinion, the amount of pain that these guys are in uh, is... Most important, that's tantamount. Um, the dogs that are at highest risk 
for bloat are, uh, what should we do, um, large breeds, giant breeds, deep-chested breeds, and um, male dogs, older dogs, so let's say over seven, dogs that are over 99 pounds, uh, what else? There are many other risk factors that we'll go over later in the show. But when we think about our Great Danes, we think about our St. Bernards, we think about our Dobies, our Weimaraners, our German Shepherds, um, English Mastiffs, the, the big guys and gals. Um, these are the dogs that we need to be talking about. Now, don't, don't discount small dogs. Any dog can bloat. And things like our Basset Hounds. When you think about a Basset Hound, is actually a large breed dog on short little legs, right? So um, don't discount anybody, but Great Danes, St. Bernards, Wymies, Dobies, German Shepherds are, um, I would say, our first five that we need to think about. Um, so let, let's just start out with a little bit of history. Uh, Becky, if you can let everyone know what you saw as a pet owner and lover the night that Mike decided to wreak havoc on your life. Well, I'll preface it by saying that Dr. O'Sullivan had talk, talked to a group of volunteers where I volunteer at hospice about this condition, and fortunately I paid attention because <laughs> we, came, we came home from dinner one night and Mike went out in the backyard and started eating grass. And Mike was not a grass eater, and he seemed very uncomfortable and was trying to vomit. And uh, all of a sudden in my head, I, it clicked, and I said to my husband, he's bloating. And my husband said, he's fine. And I said, he's not. And uh, Mike had all, the, all of the symptoms, and uh, so we rushed him into the hospital, and within an hour, he was having surgery. So it comes on that fast. So can you tell our listening audience what were some of the signs? I, I, I mean, I remember, of course, all the, the scary things that I told everybody about bloat, but I'd, I'd, like to hear, I'd like to hear from you the things that you remember, the things that rung the things that made you go, oh, crap, Mike's bloating. You know, that, that moment, that epiphany where you're like, oh, we're in trouble here. Can you kind of go over that? Because I, I remember giving the talk. I remember the things that I say about it. Um, and I'd just like to hear what, what it is that rang true with you at the moment that it was actually happening for you. Well, I think the thing that stood out the most was Mike never would eat grass. We have Dobermans, and they're grazers. They love to eat grass. So uh, for Mike to go out and eat grass was very unusual. And he was pacing. You could tell he was very uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. he, was trying, he was also trying to vomit, and he was bringing up uh, uh, bile and right. home, homey stuff. So right. all of that was very unusual for him. And just the fact that he was pacing around the backyard and, and very uncomfortable uh, made me realize that these were the symptoms you had gone over in our little seminar. All right, right, right. Now let's. Um, I, I have very, very strong feelings about our obligations to our four-legged fuzzies, and um, we're, of course, ultimately responsible for them, and all of the, you know, food and fun and exercise and medical care and decision making. That's all our responsibility, and as pet owners, then, being a veterinarian, I'm also responsible for making sure that my clients and pet owners have as much information going into the obligation of bringing a pet into their home. Now, I find that that piece on, on my part, maybe not personally, is lacking with regard to when somebody comes to an office, a veterinary office, with one of these giant breed, large breed um, risk factor puppies that sometimes they go away from these appointments never hearing about bloat, never knowing about bloat. That's why I think that this conversation that you and I are having is so important. I honestly hope everybody's listening and that for those of us that are listening to the show today, I, I would plead with you to let everyone that you know that has a dog to either listen to this broadcast later or you go ahead and impart some information to them about today's conversation. Now, when we're talking about bloat, the first sign, like Becky said, um, that I always bring up is non-productive retching. 
if your friend is leaning over, looks like they're trying to vomit, looks like they're trying to regurgitate, looks like they're trying to bring something up repeatedly and nothing's coming up or a little bit of something's coming up, a little bit of clear, a little bit of yellow, a little bit of clear of green, but there's a lot of effort going into, you know, retching. You know, just the same, unfortunately, you and I would do before we vomited. There's a lot of abdominal force. There's a lot of effort, a lot of discomfort, and then no result. And it will happen over and over again. Pacing, discomfort. Like I lay down and I get back up and I'm wandering around. I just can't get comfortable. Um, sometimes they'll dig holes or try to make their bedding more comfortable. Eating grass is a form of self-medicating, right? We put grass into our stomach and it hopefully either makes us feel better or it makes us vomit to get stuff up, right? So those three things that Becky noticed are by far the biggest clues of a bloat case. And if those things happen, sometimes uh, owners want to disregard it, like, oh, they must have just eaten something they don't like, those types of things. If you have one of our at-risk breeds or any dog and it just doesn't stop, and that you're with them, and you just look at them, and they're, they're, they're uncomfortable, they're painful. For goodness sake, get, get, them, get them to a veterinary office, and hopefully it's nothing, but time is of the essence in these cases. The amount of time that an abdomen, that its stomach is distending, is bloating with gas and fluids and those types of things directly dictates their survival, right? So if your dog has been distended for over, let's say, six hours before you go to surgery, their chance of having a good recovery decreased greatly. Okay, so what, what Becky did at, at home and just said, we're going, you know, we, we're just going, um, is absolutely the right thing to do. Becky's like a poster child for correct bloat behavior. <laughs> so Becky, can you tell us, did how did things go once you got to the hospital? And if you can let us know how you feel about your access to excellent surgeons, because they're the ones that do the job, right? They're the ones that save save our dogs' lives. Right. Um, well, my husband actually took Mike into the vet, and we are very fortunate to have a a, a vet here that has hours uh, that go till about ten o'clock in the evening. And of course, when there's an emergency, it never happens nine to five. And uh, so fortunately, this happened about uh, within the time frame to get him in. Of course, our vets uh, are great about coming in for emergencies as well. But uh-huh. the point was is that my husband was saying, he's fine, he's fine. And I'm like, no, he needs to get in the car. So uh, we're about 20 minutes from the vet. Uh, they got him in. Um, the doctor x-rayed him immediately. And within, I'd say, 45 minutes of Mike arriving, he was in surgery about 10 o'clock that night. Yeah, on the table, um, on the table. On the table. And, yeah, and fortunately, we had come home and noticed his uh, symptoms. Um, I dare say that had we been gone longer, the outcome may have been totally different had we Uh not come home and got him to the vet that quick. Uh, Absolutely. Now, um, was he, when you got home from your outing and such, was he seemed normal and then you saw the progression of his discomfort during the time you were home or when you got home, was he already pretty uncomfortable or do you remember? Well, yeah, he had had, um, that day he had had a stressful morning, Mikey, and um, so he had spent some time in his seat. And uh-huh. um, so when we came home, we let him out of his crate and, of course, he went right outside to the backyard and, and just was doing the wrenching and eating grass made me realize that something wasn't right with him. And uh, he, he normally would come out and want to play with his tennis ball and run right. around with the other dogs. And he was just too, you know, he was just walking around the backyard um, trying to get comfortable, and he just wasn't acting himself. So Right, right, right. Okay. So um, Mike, he had, in general, he was a ball-chasing, fun-loving, social dog. Can you just describe yeah. his personality? Because... Those the things that you can describe about Mike before it happened are very important with regard to indicators for the risk of bloat. So let's talk about him. Right, he was uh, just a happy-go-lucky boy. Um, he was about 11 years old when this happened. Um, but normally he would, you know, just 
jump out of his crate and grab his ball or two or three because he could get three in his <laughs> mouth all at once. <laughs> and he would just go outside and play with the other dogs and uh, run around the yard and, and bark. And he was just a happy boy. And so his symptoms, I mean, his actions were so different from being normal that, you know, that was my first thing was he's, there's just not something right with him. And, and, and just things progressed from there. So I'm just thankful we came home when we did. Because, Um, like you've always said, time is of the essence. And it's just amazing how fast this can take over your dog. And and, and the outcome can be very different if you don't get them to the vet quickly. Right, right, right. So so I'm going to, I know that your husband's the one that was in the the room. You know, when you go in, you go in the room. And is it, it, it... it would be my hope that as soon as you made the phone call or as soon as you said, that as soon as you got there, they whipped him back to the back room, got the x-rays, got moving on. And I think that I actually had a phone call while this was happening from the doctor that was in charge about that. So I know that you guys got excellent care. But um, the, the way things have to be done when, in my opinion, uh, and then also with regard to medicine, is nothing short of... Um, uh, let's see, um, veterinary heroics, okay? So you have, you've got to have people in place that know what the heck they're doing, that have a lot of support staff because this is not a one-man show trying to get to take care of a bloke dog. When you, and I would encourage anybody who thinks that their dog might possibly be bloating from this day forward to call the facility, the veterinary hospital they're heading to, when you're on your way and say, I'm coming in and I think my dog's bloating. Because if you're, you know, if that gets to a veterinarian, the first thing that should happen is you get to the door or they meet you on the sidewalk and literally, literally get your dog in the back room, get two ID catheters in them, get um, an x-ray, get some painkillers, and maybe even decompress their stomach um, by, by doing it with large needles, trying to get all that air, all that gas out of there, depending on what's going on. Each case is so specific. But... Getting IV fluids going, not only in the front legs but in the back legs. Checking their heart for arrhythmias. Getting some blood work working. Then, then, when they get that X-ray, while everyone else is doing the fluids, everyone else is checking the heart. Everyone else is, you know, colors and pulses and those types of things. And getting blood work running. At that time is usually when the veterinarian comes back into the room and talks to you and says, "Your dog's floating," or you know, "God forbid," you know, nobody wants this to happen, but just as Becky's pointed out, time is of the essence. So to wait in the waiting room and then wait for a room and then have a consultation, then go back and get the dog on, t- on the table and then do an x-ray and then come back, you're, you're looking at, I don't know, it could be anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour, right? We don't have and 15 that, minutes to an hour. Yeah? And that makes think, a Becky? huge difference. It makes a huge difference. I mean, and that's a good point is to call ahead to your vet and say we're on the way and these are the symptoms. And, and like Dr. O'Sullivan says, if it's not bloating, great, you know, but if they are bloating, then you, you, you've bought your dog some more time and they're going to be ready for you when you get there. And, and take it from me, you, you, you need to be tuned up as a veterinarian. When, when you hear that is coming in, it's you, it's at least one other surgeon, at least one other surgeon, three to four backup people, anesthesia, all of your meds, get, make sure your blood machines are working, make sure you have a gurney, Make sure you have plenty of people to move this dog. And then you make sure that that dog does not hurt you or itself because they're going to be painful. They're going to be scared. And you want to just make sure that you respect that and so nobody else gets in trouble or gets hurt. And we all know it's not the dog's fault. It will never be the dog's fault if you were in that much pain. But when a bloke case comes in, rest assured that the hospital you go into is going to be uh, on high alert, to say the least. So it's a lot of staff, it's a lot of effort, and that hopefully there's a lot of um, uh, people that are very in tune with each other with regard to when the doctor says something, it means now, like right now. So that call-in and the people, the owners, usually are quite upset, and the um, the speed at which things happen for blow cases doesn't do anything to help that, does it? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to whisk your dog away and I'll be back in a minute, you know, because I don't really, I don't really have time to stand here and talk to you about what might be going on. I'm going to be in the back and try to 
literally trying to save your dog's life. So, and then we then we come out once we get them stabilized. So it happens kind of in reverse. And I'm not saying this is true for every single hospital. I'm just saying that the hospitals that I've been in and the urgency with which most veterinarians, well, hopefully all veterinarians, consider blow cases. It's a right now. It's diagnose it. It's start treating it, relieve this creature's pain, and get a darn fine surgeon in that knows what they're doing. And we'll go over what that includes in a little bit of time. But I would like to go over um, some of the, uh, let's see, it's myths about bloat, myths about feeding and treating and those types of things, large breed dogs or giant, you know, uh, giant breed dogs. And the increased factors and decreasing factors for the risk of bloat. And uh, unfortunately, they change all the time. But I want to make sure that we have a really good idea of what this bloat really is. So once again, if for some reason we just don't know that a dog's stomach starts to distend, distend, bloat, 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 get bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden it twists upon itself. The whole thing twists and it, 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 it's like a twist tie, unfortunately. And stuff, be it gas, air, food, fluid, can't escape and it continues to get larger and larger. Unfortunately, when the stomach twists, it will take the spleen with it and many times rip the spleen away from where the spleen is supposed to live. That in and of itself is a problem. Then we are not able to get blood supply from the back of the body to the front of the body and so on, which makes the heart very, very unhappy, right? And uh, as the stomach and other organs lose their blood supply because of this stretching and twisting, the tissue literally starts to die, okay? So when we go in to a bloat surgery, if we're lucky enough to do that, we're looking to put all the organs back where they belong, stop any bleeding, cut away the organs that have lost their blood supply, drain the stomach, flush the stomach to get everything out of there that's been sitting in there festering, or rotting, unfortunately, then make sure that all the blood supply is good, the heart's working well, uh, lots, of, lots of antibiotics, lots of work that way, and then um, double and triple check everything. Usually, usually remove the spleen, part of the stomach. It's a case-by-case thing, but this is, I hope I'm conveying it, a humongous in-depth in surgery to make sure that there is clean and healthy and functioning when you sew them up. So um, then you are into, I survived my surgery. Then there's post-surgical concerns. But let's stop there. As we can talk about Mike, Mike went in, Mike shows a couple signs, he gets to the hospital quickly. And what do you think, Becky, between you coming home and going, huh, what's Mike doing versus your husband getting into the hospital and him getting on the table. What do you think, time-wise? Oh, an hour tops. I mean, from the time we came home to the time was on the, Mike was on the table was about an hour, maybe a little bit longer. Yeah, but, but fortunately, we were, we were close enough to the, you know, some people don't have that luxury of being close right. to their vet or having the, you know, vet be open. So, you know, you're... You have other things to deal with if your vet's not open. Is getting someone to meet you and uh, or an emergency vet. You know, it's, every situation's a little bit different depending, I guess, on where you live. Um, but I just want to say too that, you know, I knew about bloat. I, I knew I have big dogs, um, but until you experience it, you have no idea uh, what it's all about. And um, I can't say enough how important it is to to get somewhere and get your dog help immediately if you even suspect that it's happening. Because until you live through it, um, you can talk about it and you, you think you understand it, but you have to, you know, when you go through it, it's a, di- a different story. And it's yeah. scary. And, and just because <laughs> they survived the surgery doesn't always mean, but it doesn't end there. It's their aftercare when they come home and their healing process as well. So it is, it's a huge thing. And, and, it's a lot of work, and it's a big surgery, and um, I just encourage everybody to study up and, and know more about it. 
Good, good, good. That, 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 Becky, you were, Becky, you can do this show all by your damn self. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, so, so going on what Becky just introduced, um, one of the best sites, in my opinion, to get information on bloat and many other veterinary concerns is a site called veterinarypartner.com. And this is all information written by a veterinarian or veterinary technician. It's very timely information, okay? And you just go in the search box and type in bloat, B-L-O-A-T, hit the enter, and it will come up with some choices, okay? Um, I highly, highly encourage everybody and everybody you know, and whether you got a dog or not, spread the word, please. Um, now, Becky, uh, if you had been alone, would this be a problem, trying to move a down dog, trying to move a painful dog, those types of things? Or let's say you lived in a place, let's say that your animal hospital was closed. How do we best prepare ourselves and our friends and our fellow dog lovers for, God forbid, an emergency like this in a situation that if you were in that, if you were in that situation? What would you recommend? I would say um, to prepare to have a game plan, so to speak. It's kind of like when we have a natural disaster. It's, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing that to know who your backup vet is or uh, where your emergency vet is if your vet is not open, um, to contact a neighbor or a friend next door, someone close by to help you get the dog into the car because usually it's a big dog and usually you won't be able to handle the dog yourself. Fortunately, Mike was was able to walk and get into the car on his own speed, but um, not all dogs are like that. And I I just think it's just to have a game plan and um, uh, just be prepared. Yeah. Well, I can can speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. Call call for help to get get your friend in the damn car. Call the veterinarian when you're on the way and have a backup phoner for a 24-hour emergency facility and... You kind of want to check and make sure that these guys in the emergency facilities, most of the time they will, but your normal veterinary hospital, like you were pointing out, not everybody lives in a big city. Not everyone lives where there are multiple veterinarian hospitals on every other corner. So you want to make sure that the hospitals that you're in uh, uh, can handle a bloke case because, like I said, it is a surgical skill in and of itself. It needs experience. It needs a lot of people, and it's going to need 24-hour care. So you don't you don't cut a blow case and then send everybody home and hope they'll be okay in the morning. You know, I mean this this is the emergency. Um, uh, like I said, with lots of consequences. So like I said, the mother of all emergencies. Now that being said, my personal dog floated. Um, I don't know if you remember Ramsey. He was a 212 pound English Mastiff, and I came home from work uh, at the animal hospital one night. And son of a gun, if he wasn't out in the backyard. Um, pacing in circles. It's pitch black out there. And I'm looking, looking, squinting, looking, squinting, looking, then he goes down. Then he stands up, he turns in a circle and goes down. And I'm like, oh, are you, I'm like, I'm honestly asking, I'm like, are you kidding me? You are not floating right now. And son of a gun, he wasn't. So I was lucky the way Becky and her husband were lucky that um, he was still moving. He was still, you know, walking. Now, in my case, I have a 212-pound painful, bloated, down creature. How do I get that dog to the hospital? For me, I always have blankets that you can put next to them and literally roll them up onto the blanket and drag them, I mean, literally drag them. And sometimes, of course, it's easier if you have more people, right? But we kind of have to think outside the box, right? How are we going to get this creature into a car? Um, So if you have a large breed dog, Think about just always having a blanket available that you can literally roll them onto or pull them onto and then drag the blankie because if they're down, that's our first problem. So just um, keep that in mind. Uh, and then getting to the hospital, making the phone call, identifying who your veterinarians are that can can handle a bloat case um, both during surgery and afterwards, okay? So let's talk about some of our some of our. Um, risk factors and our breeds. Now, Becky, what when you think about a deep-chested, large breed or giant breed dog, what do you think about? Because in my history, people's idea of what a large breed dog is different. <laughs> and, and I come from the world of gigantic dogs, you know, the mastiffs, chefs and such. And 
some people think a large breed dog is like 40 pounds. So uh, <laughs> what do you think? Well, having uh, having Dobermans all my life um, uh, and, and Shepherds, I'd say those are the top two. And um, I've never really had little dogs, so I've never heard of little dogs floating. Um, but like Dr. O'Sullivan said, it's not impossible. Um, uh, definitely your boxers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Who I consider uh, golden retrievers, mm-hmm. um, Labradors, yeah. Um, yeah, and of course you know like Dr. O'Sullivan's talking uh, mastiffs, and uh, I'm I'm, ass- I'm assuming Irish Wolfhounds and those yeah big, big yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah all yeah. of those guys yeah. Uh, yeah, and not only being a giant dog like over 99 pounds, so those taking a chested dog, deep chested dogs are the dogs that are usually the length from their shoulders down to their sternum. You know, their breastbone is really, really long, and that the width of their chest, you know, their their shoulders kind of looks narrow. Those would be things like uh, Great Danes, Greyhounds, Setters, those types of things, and also um, Dobermans. There's a lot of Dobermans that are kind of... When you look at them from the top, they're kind of narrow from left to right. But when you look at them from the side, they're very, very deep. You know, from the length from the top to the bottom is very long. And that sets up an uh, interesting um, bucket, basically, for their stomachs to sit in. And that seems to have something to do with the risk factors for bloat. Now, um, when I was at Purdue, that's where I got my veterinary medical degree, there was a Dr. Glickman working there doing a retrospective study on the risk factors for bloat. And retrospective studies mean that they collect thousands and thousands and thousands of records from cases in veterinary medical hospitals of bloat and find out what they were eating, how they were drinking, what was their personality, uh, were they anxious dogs, were they a family history, those types of things. So I'm going to read off some factors that increase the risk of bloat. Now, these are based on, like I said, a very, very large retrospective study. And in my history of dealing with veterinary medicine, people that own large breed dogs, people that breed large breed dogs, people that train large breed dogs, all seem to have their own ideas about what's good, what's bad, what's this, what's that. And it's all based on history, and that's fine. That's that's great, and I have a lot of respect for that. Um, And I do know that many times the information that we get from professionals, from doctors, from research, changes, right? It, it, because something says some, somebody says something is good today, doesn't mean they're always going to say it's good today. No, they're going to change their mind. <laughs> so um, recent, recently, within the last two years, um, the factors that increase our, the risk of our large breed dogs bloating Right? So these are things we probably don't want to do. And Becky, please chime in at any time and add to these lists. Because like I said, I'm just reading this. And of course, I've got my own ideas based on my own being a client versus being a doctor. <laughs> so this is very different, right? Um, yeah. Animals are only fed once a day, right? I have a big belly full of food. Having closely related family members with a history of bloat, does it run in my family? Eating rapidly. Do I eat this big meal rapidly? Am I super thin or super overweight? You know, just like you and I, being of moderate weight, good condition, good muscle tone helps with everything, right? But if I'm too thin, too fat. Now, feeding from an elevated bowl. Becky, tell me, have you ever heard that feeding from an elevated bowl is good for your dogs versus bad for your dogs? Yeah, there's conflicting, um, you know, opinions about that. Um, yes. I've, I've used elevated dishes, and I, uh, Mike used to actually lay in his crate and eat laying down. He never mm-hmm. ate sitting up. Um, so did that contribute? We don't know. Who um, knows? Who knows? Yeah. Right? Who knows? Yeah. I, yeah, uh, I, feed, I feed all different ways. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think it's, you, everyone tries to do their best, you know, but depending on what they read, when they read, when it was written, all these types of things, it changes, right? Um, right. Restricting water before or after a meal increases the risk of bloat, and I honestly don't know why we would do that, but apparently it happens. Feeding a dry diet with animal fats as the first four ingredients. Okay, this this is a good one for me. 
Um, I want my first four ingredients in any food I have my clients feed to be a protein, a, you know, a pure protein, not a protein meal, not a byproduct meal. I don't want a animal fat to be one of the top four ingredients in what we put in our four-legged fuzzies, right? So unfortunately, having an animal fat listed in the first four ingredients seems to increase the risk of bloat, so let's not do that. Fearful and anxious temperament. History of aggression towards people and other dogs. Male dogs are more likely to bloat than females, and dogs, which are 7 to 12 years old, are the biggest risk group. So when I was in school and when I just um, first started to do this, there were four things that we always were taught, and it might have even been a board exam question for all I can remember. It is, do you have a family history? Are you an anxious, fearful creature? Are you a male dog, and are you over seven years old? Those are the big four that were increased your risk factors of bloat for giant breed dogs. Okay, so um, of all those, Becky, what what did Mike have? Um, Mike was over seven. He was about eleven years old. He was a male. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say he was aggressive. I mean, he was pretty much a laid-back dog, but, I mean, he was a German Shepherd, so um, they're protective when need be, but not overly aggressive. So he had two of those markers. Um, And he he was not over underweight, and you fed him, what, two, three times a day? Yeah, he ate twice a day, and his weight was normal. He was a big dog. He was um, about 100 pounds. He was a a large uh, German Shepherd. Um, He was a big boy. He was a very big boy, but he wasn't <laughs> overweight or fat by any means. He was just, you know, a large German Shepherd. So, right. yeah. And he, he had what, one of those markers. Um, and so when we talk about reading, uh, whether you get your information from the Internet or from an anonymous source or your neighbors, those types of things, we have to take these things as, with a grain of salt. We're, we're all do our best within our education and our experience. Um, but just know that when something like this happens, I think it's really important that people know, I bet you please correct me or add to this if I'm wrong or off base at all, there cannot be any assigned guilt. People sometimes feel guilty. What did I do wrong? How did I not know? How did this happen? It's, it's a natural process, a grieving process. It doesn't mean our friend passed away. It just means that how, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? those types of things. I, I know it's personal, Becky, but can you kind of elaborate on that a bit? Because I know I've been through it. <laughs> um, yeah, there is guilt. You think, well, what, what, you know, what didn't I see or what did I do or what could have I done to prevent it? Um, but I don't think that you could ever uh, pinpoint it. Um, all the people that I've talked with that have experienced this, there's no rhyme or reason to why this happens. You know, there's speculation you know, while the dog was stressed out or, you know, like Dr. O'Sullivan said, you know, they they didn't feed their food elevated or they didn't do this or that. Um, in my research that I've done since Mike had the bloat, um, there just seems to be no rhyme or reason to any of it. So right. it's just, it just happens. So you just have to be aware and uh, and and know uh, what you're looking for and what, what's ahead of you if your dog does bloat. Okay, that is perfect, perfect, Betsy. Now, um, truth moment here. When you got your large breed dogs and when you went to a veterinarian and when you went for your normal puppy vaccines or your spay neuter or those types of things, was bloat dust with you? And I can tell you, I'll, I'll tell you my, my story personally, but was was there a time in your vast history with large breed dogs when you went in for a normal, traditional um, course of events to take care of your fuzzies, that this was presented to you as a risk factor? Not that I can remember, especially when I was younger. Um, in more recent years, and especially when I met you, is when it was talked about more. Um, you know, they may have mentioned it, your dog could do this, but I don't ever remember being educated on it, the signs and what to do. Um, and so, uh, like I said, when you came and did the seminar for all of our volunteers and our pet therapy people, um, right. so I think it's an important part of uh, veterinarian care that people are told uh, when you have a large dog, this is something that could happen. 
Right. Now I could I couldn't agree with you more and I'm gonna get up on the soap I mean on my soapbox here because I I'm a violator, I'm a hypocrite. You know, I, I come out of school, I did I did traditional, I did high speed, twelve doctor practice, veterinary medicine, I did. And um I when they came in I knew what to do. But being proactive, being preemptive, being uh more concerned about education, it honestly honestly, never crossed my mind. It's not like, oh, maybe I should do this, but no. It wasn't, I dismissed it. It's not something that ran across my mind while I was doing practice until I don't even know what day that, what day my my switch flipped. But when we go into our veterinarians, when we go into um, our normal, uh, whatever reasons we go to our vet, in a very kind way, in not never finger pointing, never negativity. Just um, we might ask, and we might just remind um, that this is really, really important. Or ask and say, "Hey, I heard about float. What is it?" Or something along those lines. Especially when our, we get our puppies, or we get um, dogs that are heading towards six years of age. Those types of things. I think that it's something that can easily be missed in the owner education process in veterinary offices. And without us, white coats, our veterinarians, you know. Where where are clients supposed to get their information? You know, with regard to what, how am I supposed to take care of this creature? How am I supposed to do my best? So, um, like I said, without any negativity and no finger pointing, self education, owner responsible, responsible for getting information on the breeds of dogs they choose, on the sex of dogs they choose, and the long term care consequences and possibilities. That information is out there. So I think that. The responsibility for education has to be split, both self-education and then the responsibility of the care provider to educate. So that is a, a wonderful thought process on my part. But if you don't know to begin with, to start, how, how do you even know you're not doing it? You know, so it, it really is a circular argument. But that's why we're on the air today, right? So. Um, Becky, do you have any? If you were to do over, and you or you have friends that get a dog or a pup or something like that, what would you? How would you advise our listeners to go about self-educating or helping your friends? Or if you're involved, like let's say, with a rescue, with with foster parents, with new adoptive parents, what would you recommend to make sure that people know or they can take care of their friends? They can be educated going into a, a adoption or bringing a dog like that into their home? Well, I do know that uh, with rescue here in Vegas, with Vegas Shepherd Rescue, they educate uh, the the adopters about the German Shepherd breed, and we do talk about bloat and what their options. As a matter of fact, a young man adopted one of our dogs recently, and uh, I think we scared him silly because he called his mom (laughs) one night and said, uh, I think Ranger's bloating, and um, off he went to the vets, and he wasn't bloating, but we obviously made an impression, and uh, he knew what to look for, and he got in the car, and off he went, and thank goodness the dog was not bloating, but um, I think the more we can educate our friends, and if you know somebody that has a big dog, you know, just tell them about it. Say, hey, I don't want to scare you, but you know, this is something that could happen to your dog and you you should be aware of it. And I think veterinarians now talk to us more about it, uh, especially when we come in with our new German Shepherd puppy or our large breed puppies. Uh, They seem to be uh, talking about it a little bit more. I know they do here in Vegas. I'm not sure in other places. Um, So, and I think it's up to the breeders, hopefully, to talk to um, people that are purchasing puppies uh, about bloat. So, you know, it's just awareness. I think it's like we all say we never knew about a certain uh, disease or ailment until we uh, experienced it ourselves, and now we're the experts. You know, we live through it. So um, <laughs> so we're able to share our experiences with our friends and family, and hopefully they won't have to go through the same thing. And if they do, then they're better prepared. Right, right, right. Now, Becky, did um, did Mike get a pexy during his surgery? I bet he did, huh? Yes, he did. Yeah. Okay. And so I was going to ask you about that. Is that seems to be very popular here? Is uh, when you get your large breed puppy spayed or neutered, that's an option they offer us now is to do that. Yay! Good, and I, good, good. So let's talk yeah. about that. 
Um, When there's a there's a procedure, it's called a gastropexy. Pexy meaning tacking, like tacking something down, like a nail and hammer. Gastro meaning stomach. Okay, so the gastropexy is actually when it's a prophylactic surgery for bloat, and it means that during a spay or neuter, usually, right, while you're in surgery, while you're under general anesthesia, anyway, we go in there and we tie the side of their stomach to the inside of their rib cage. And it's a very, you know, it's it's a it needs to have a skilled veterinarian surgeon do it. Um, but it is a prophylactic to decrease dramatically the risk of a bloat, of a twist of that, um, the volvulus. The volvulus is an actual twist. So a dog that's pexied um, has, they can get bloated. Their stomach can get big, like you and I when we eat too many you know, nachos or something like that. You know, just poof, get, get large, get distended, make us uncomfortable. But it will not twist. And the twist is the piece that causes all of that detrimental consequences. So um, hopefully all veterinarians, when, they're ha- when they have a large breed dog, um, they are offering a gastropexy, like Becky said, as part of the spay or neuter procedure. Or you can do them on their own. It doesn't, you don't have to be under general anesthesia for something else. If you have a dog that's been spayed or neutered, talk to your veterinarian about pexing these dogs. So even if they blow they won't twist. They won't have a volvulus um, and risk, you know, risk their life. Now, the PEXI procedures are, um, I'm not going to say that they're easy. They're, you know, they're, they're a major surgery, but they decrease the chances of bloating or bloating again, right, down to about 6%. Um, those are the most recent numbers. So the trick is that if you have a dog that's bloated, if you, if you go into surgery, to untwist, to clean up, to cut out dead pieces, to flush everything out, those types of things, that major, major surgery, check for heart arrhythmia, stabilize the fluid level, decompress the stomach, all of those things that happen in this huge surgery, a pexy should be part of that surgery if the stomach is healthy enough to deal with those sutures. Because if you bloat once, the recurrence rate for a bloat is as high as 75%. So... Those are, um, you know, without surgery, they'll twist. If you go to surgery and don't get pexied, it may happen again, okay? So uh, we, and I, I can't, I can't, um, what, what we have, according to this study, uh, without surgery, 24% mortality rate and 76% chance of rebloating at some time. Uh, and if you choose to go to um, surgery and the stomach is tacked, it reduces the recurrence rate to 6%. Um, and that, that's dramatic, right, from 76 to 6%. If we can do these surgeries before there's an incident, before there's a bloat, before there is um, a huge expense, uh, both financially, emotionally, physically, um, I think it's a great idea. And if you haven't heard of a pexy, a gastropexy, and you have a large breed dog, or you just have a dog in general, Please ask, you know, ask your, uh, your veterinarians. That would be a great idea. Now, Becky, can you go over a little bit of um, life with Mike after his surgery? Okay, well, it's been a little bit, so I have to think back. But I remember that he was very, you know, fragile. Um, we had to be very careful with his diet for, for a little bit um, because I kind of equate it to, like, maybe the stomach stapling in a human that you're not, you can't eat a lot right away and uh, small meals throughout the day. Um, I don't recall if he was on medication. I'm assuming he was probably pain medications, maybe antibiotics. You could probably, you know, help me with that part. But uh, I do know that aftercare is a big part of this, and it's time-consuming. And um, just because they make it through the surgery itself doesn't mean they're going to come through with flying colors. So all of the aftercare is uh, very important as well. So, like Dr. O'Sullivan said, you're investing a lot of money into the surgery and, and hopefully your dog survives and the aftercare is, is a lot. And um, then there is always that concern, is it going to happen again? So, fortunately, Mike was able to have uh, his stomach tacked when he bloated and, um, you know, we didn't worry as much, but now I have other dogs that I think, you know, 
should I go ahead and do this surgery? You know, is it going to happen to one of my other dogs? And it's very scary, and it's very expensive. And some people, unfortunately, don't have the finances to have this type of surgery, and then, you know, they have to make hard decisions, you know. So hopefully, you know, I just pray that a lot of people never have to go through it. Uh, We were fortunate that Mike did well. Um, Even at the age of 11, we were very fortunate. So. Right. Right, right, yeah. right, and that, and that's, uh, and the, 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 like you explained, the, the factors that went into it. You know, you caught it early. You knew what the heck you were looking for. You had a great place to take them that could handle it. You were able to, time wise, financially wise, emotionally wise, aftercare wise, even consider having this, you know, this huge surgery. Um, so, and then you were able to do aftercare, and he he did well. So he's mm-hmm. a, he's a true success case. I mean, he's absolutely a true success case. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that we have the ability to do prophylactic surgeries for dogs that are at high risk for bloat, the fact that we have to figure out a way to educate more people about what bloat looks like. And in in my uh, one person's opinion here, if your if your friend is bloating. Never question how much pain they're in. Uh, it, it's a, it's an excruciating, you know, if with a twisted stomach, our friends will die in pain in a matter of hours unless they're taken care of one way or the other. Now, if you get to a hospital and they're far down the road, they're not, you know, they have other clinical signs, there are financial reasons, there are every 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 kind of reason you can think of. Sending, in my opinion, sending your friend to heaven in a very peaceful, non-painful way at that point in time is an absolute, 100% kind, wonderful thing to do. You don't want them to suffer anymore. And if we're not going to be able to do surgery for any reason, whether it's facilities, whether it's staff, whether it's money, whether it's re, um, aftercare, whether it's, it's been too damn long before we got them here, whatever. You know, we just don't know. These are you know bad things happen all the time, but the emotional piece that goes along with making a decision to let your friend go and stop being in pain, knowing that they can't survive this, you know, they cannot survive it um, without medical care if they actually have a twist, and knowing that, you know, compassionate euthanasia, knowing sending them to heaven in a a way that is pain-free and hopefully surrounded by people they love is an option that is positive. You know, some people, uh, maybe you can help me out with this because I'm, I'm rambling, but um, our ability to send our friends to heaven and stop their pain, I I think is a shockingly positive thing, a really positive thing. So help me out here, Becky. Oh, yes. Um, I agree. Um, I actually have friends who had friends that had a, a great thing that bloated and she made it through the surgery, but um, she didn't do well afterwards and they had to send her to the bridge and... Um, it was very sad, but, you know, like I said before, just because your dog makes it through the surgery uh, doesn't mean that it's clear sailing from there. There's a lot involved. And um, that was for her, uh, the kind thing to do was to let her go, surrounded by her family and loved ones. And it's very sad for everybody, but, and I'm sure there was a lot of guilt involved there, but it's one of those things that happens. We can't make, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And we do the best we can, and uh, we just pray that our dogs make it through. And uh, Mike lived three more years after his <laughs> surgery, and uh, <laughs> and I know he didn't have him taking his tennis balls as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your your choice of the word kind uh, couldn't be a better place. I mean, my goodness, it's uh, uh, you know it's an impossible it's an impossible choice, isn't it? But when it comes right down to it. And we, it's not about us. I mean, it's just not about the human piece or the guilt piece or the I'm going to miss my friend piece. Or it's, uh, in my opinion, it's about our responsibility to them till that last, to to the last. So the, the, I think that my ability as a veterinarian to help send these guys to the bridge is perfect. I mean, it's just, it's nice to be able to offer that to folks and Knightsfield offer that to our four-legged friends because they don't, mm-hmm. they don't, you know, they 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 don't want to be in pain anymore. They don't want to, you know, those types of. And if you don't mind me asking, if you can remember, do you remember how much your surgery cost? 
You know, when there's a, that, that uh, number that you look up against when they say your dog is bloated, we need to go to surgery now? I think it was like $4,500. Yeah. So if I, could, if I could say to anybody out there, if uh, if you can afford the surgery to have your dog's stomach tapped while he's being spayed or neutered or whenever, um, although that's not a cheap surgery in itself, um, it will save you a lot of heartache down the road and, and a larger expense um, if your dog were to bloat. And I'm sure a lot of that just depends on how far your dog is along with the bloat. Um, mm-hmm. $4,500 is a big pill to swallow. But I, I don't know if you remember when, um, you know, when I was at your group and giving you the, the scenario, which is exactly what you lived through and you presented here today so gracefully, that, you know, the phone call comes in, we go into high gear, we take your dogs from you, we rush them back, we start we start procedures of decompression, IV fluids, check their heart, get the x-rays, and then, then, and only then, do we walk back into a room as veterinarians as white coats and say, your dog is floating and we need to go to surgery right now. Here's an estimate. And it's, in my experience, it's going to be four grand plus just to get through today. Who the heck can make that decision under pressure at the moment where it's, Right, I mean, right now, we have no choice whatsoever right now. We have to go to surgery or go to heaven, you know. So it's, a, it's an impossibly difficult thing to, you can't prepare for it. I, could, I couldn't, and I'm a veterinarian. When it happened to me, I, you know, I was like, you know, and uh, it's, just, it's just really difficult. So uh, I think that Becky's idea of considering a gastropexy always for any of our dogs that are at risk so that we can not have to go through this and spend as much time as we can educating people or asking for information from the folks that are in charge, you know, with regard to veterinarians or really good um, sources of information. But I think we've presented a really thorough um, vision of this uh, mother of all emergencies in veterinary medicine. And um, watching your animals, your dogs, for the signs. The biggest clue, once again, non-productive retching discomfort, pacing, self-medicating by eating grass or who knows what else um, is, is extremely important. Having a, a relationship with a veterinarian you can call and say, I'm coming in, I think my dog is bloating, and get them ready. Know that what your emergency facilities are. Know to call your friends to get help to move your dog. Keep yourself safe and your dog safe from a possible, you know, pain response, whether it's biting or growling or those types of things because we never want to blame the dog, and we also don't want to get anybody hurt, right? So in our final couple minutes, Becky, I would love it if you could share with our listening audience today um, a little bit about Mike and his, you know, his recovery, as you talked about, and his follow-up with the veterinarians and those types of things, and his quality of life for that next three years. Did he suffer any kind of ongoing consequences, or you guys are just mindful and Alert, can you just kind of share with us for a couple minutes? Um, can you guys hear me? Because I think I got cut off for a second. No, we're, we're, I'm right here. Okay. Um, Mike, uh, well, you know, he was 11 when it happened, and he passed away just before he was 14. Um, he did have other health issues. He had uh, spondylosis, which is another topic I'm sure Dr. O'Sullivan will talk about. Um, but as far as uh, he, he had his his sense of humor, and he was a happy dog, and his appetite returned, and he played with his tennis balls. So it took him a little bit, I believe, because he was an older dog. If he had been two, his recovery probably would have been quicker. But um, he was fine. You know, he he was back to normal, um, which I thought was great. Um, no long-term uh, effects from the surgery that I knew of or could see. So he had a great life until he went to the bridge. Very nice. I can't. I can't thank you enough for sharing with us, Becky. I know that it's not. It's not easy going back to some of these things that are so shocking. So just take us by surprise, and that um, you're sharing with folks that may or may not know, or maybe you never even heard about this, is so valuable. And I can't. I can't thank you enough for that. Um, and you've got a whole bunch of fuzzies at home still that you're using your cast education on for <laughs> your home population and your. Um, your rescue organizations that you're involved in and such. So kudos, kudos to you, my dear. That's just, it's fantastic. And I'm glad, I'm glad you're the one that could get on today and share the information with us. So for our listeners, 
please um, look up the information that you need on veterinarypartners.com. Look on our um, website if you'd like, vet, uh, holisticvetservices.com. And please seek help with your veterinarian, seek information, and make sure to ask about gastropexies at every opportunity at your veterinarian. Thank you very much for listening.